Welcome to CruxCast. Whether you're in your car, at work, or at home, we hope you enjoy this interview. And if you do, you can find more like it on cruxinvestor.com. So please subscribe. We speak today to James Campbell, who's the MD of Botswana Diamonds. He talks us through the macro thesis for investing in diamonds, not a space we knew too much about. So we quite enjoyed learning who the players are and what the future holds, he believes, for the diamond market. We also talk about the company itself. They're a relatively small 3 million market cap company with not a lot of cash, having raised £350,000 last month, seen through the next few months. We talk about what the major catalysts will be for them as they explore and evaluate the licenses and permits that they currently have. Enjoy the podcast. Good morning, James. How are you, sir? I'm very good indeed, Matthew. And how are you? Not too bad. Not too bad. Not too bad. Now, you're speaking to us uh, from sunny South Africa at the moment. Um, you hold up at home, avoiding COVID-19 and coronavirus, are you? Absolutely, Matthew. We've been under lockdown now for 11 days uh, and, and we haven't left the property in, in 11 days. Uh, absolutely adhering to the government's mandate to keep safe. Good. Good man. That's what we like to hear. Now, why don't we kick off uh, by you giving us a one minute overview on Botswana Diamonds and then we'll get into some questions. Botswana Diamonds PLC is a London AIM and Botswana Stock Exchange listed company. Uh, focused on diamond exploration and development projects in Southern Africa, being Botswana, South Africa, and Zimbabwe. Uh, Over a third of the world's diamonds are mined in this region, and and we view the region as being highly prospective, uh, and and thus our activity and our focus on Southern Africa. Fantastic. Thanks for that summary. like me, I think a lot of our viewers are probably not that au fait with diamonds. You know, there's, there's more fashionable commodities out there. Um, you know, it's, it's gold, and therefore they're more easily understood because a lot more information. Diamonds, so diamonds is something that I would like your help to try and understand. So, let's start with the macro first. Can you sort of explain, you know, you know, the world of diamonds as it is today, it, it, pertaining to public market diamond companies? How many of them are there? What sort of size are they? Where are they? I think if, if I could, Matthew, I'll just start off with a, a, a macroeconomic uh, perspective on, on why diamonds. Perfect. Uh, of course, if you are engaged or planning to be engaged or married or planning to be married, you will buy a, a diamond. And, and typically, uh, in terms of that rite of passage from an engagement perspective, you'll spend between three or four months gross salary on a diamond as a symbol of your love for your partner. And and this is something which is very consistent around the world, uh, not just in in the UK and in Europe, but very much so in uh, the United States, China, India and the Far East. So that is where the demand comes. And the second little piece of interesting information is is that once you've bought your first diamond, you're statistically more likely to buy another diamond. And once you've bought a second diamond, uh, you are even more likely to buy a third diamond. So that is where the main market actually sits. It's in your engagement rings, and it's then in your your rites of passage, be it a a marriage ceremony, a, a birthday, a wedding anniversary, or even if you are a, a single person, basically giving yourself something 
uh, and, and Chris Everett Lloyd and, and the tennis bracelet uh, was a wonderful example of a very successful lady giving herself something to represent her own success. And, and that's also very, very common uh, um, amongst uh, single ladies. So what feeds into that, uh, to ask, answer your question directly, Matthew, it, it, it is the public diamond companies. The two major diamond companies in the world, which probably produce between them uh, about two thirds of the world diamonds are, are, are De Beers uh, and their partnerships with the government of Botswana called Debswana and their partnership uh, with uh, the government of Namibia and called Namdeb. So they have operations in, in Botswana, in Namibia and in South Africa, and they also have operations in, in Canada. A and they produce uh, the largest amount of diamonds by carat. Uh, and that's how we, we measure the weight of a diamond uh, and a carat is 0.2 of a gram. The largest producer by value is the is Alrosa, uh, which is a Russian firm. Uh, it is publicly listed too, but not a vast amount of shares. They're very much focused on, on Russia, uh, but they also have an operation uh, called Katoka uh, in, in Angola itself. And then the, the balance of the third or, or 40% uh, of global diamond production comes from a, a number of mid-tier companies and smaller companies. And probably the largest of the, the mid-tier companies are Petro Diamonds, which is active uh, in South Africa and Tanzania, uh, Gem Diamonds, uh, which is active in, in Lesotho and Botswana, uh, and Lukara Diamond, uh, which is active in Botswana. There are other producers such as uh, Mountain Province, uh, Dominion Diamond Corporation, and others who are active in, in Canada. So the two stock exchanges, uh, which house the, the majority of the uh, the mid-tier diamond companies are, of course, the London Stock Exchange and the Toronto Stock Exchange in Canada. And then you have uh, the small producers and the explorers, which actually sit below that. Uh, but they're aspirant, possibly, uh, producers. Uh, but in terms of global diamond production, uh, they're relatively insignificant. Wow. There you go. That's, that's a great, great overview. <laughs> I'm not sure if I ever did that one. Yeah. yeah no, fantastic. I mean, the, the question I do ask there, you talk about, um, you know, jewellery, diamonds for jewellery. And sorry if we bounce around a bit here, but you, you just made me think, think. What about industrial diamonds? Where do they sit on, in, in the scheme of things? Because I, I remember sitting in an airport in uh, Switzerland in a secure compound area looking at $70 million worth of diamonds in various bags of stones of various sizes, but the bulk of them seem to be for industrial use. So where do they sit in the mix? From a value perspective, it, it, it's relatively small. Uh, and the majority of the industrial diamonds are produced on industrial presses and, and, and not out of the, uh, the primary uh, natural diamond source being kimberlites. And, and these are used in all forms of, of, of cutting tools, uh, drilling bits, lathes, and the such like. Very, very common, uh, very, very small, but chiefly generated by industrial presses out of uh, Ireland, out of the United States, uh, out of Iceland, and actually elsewhere. But from a value perspective, it's relatively insignificant when compared to the jewellery industry. 
However, there are very interesting other uses beginning to kind of creep in uh, to, to these kind of diamonds, such as computer chips, which have long been made uh, out, out of silica and other things. And, and diamonds is a fantastic conductor. So maybe going into the future, uh, diamonds uh, could well be uh, the computer chip of choice too as well. Okay, so let's, and can you give, I, know I did read a, a piece that you did, and I think it's on your website um, called Financing Diamond Projects. So you just have a lot of um, the economics behind diamonds um, discussed in there. But can you give us a sort of a financial forecast as to what the market looks like according to your version of um, the world? If I could answer that maybe in, in two parts, Matthew, the first part is from a, a financing perspective uh, and the second part is trying to get a crystal ball out uh, in terms of uh, where the future will be. Uh, from a, a financing perspective, uh, much changed post the global financial crisis in 2009. Up until that point, uh, you had large uh, equity firms such as uh, BlackRock and JP Morgan and others who would always take a, a 10% or, or thereabout slug of any diamond exploration company which they viewed uh, had particular merit. And, and from that, they were able to actually get a, a good slice of the, the, the kind of diamond income that would come through from an uplift in those growth stocks. Post 2009, uh, the market changed considerably, uh, the risk profile changed significantly, and the funding of Diamond Juniors, which has chiefly been the engine of exploration growth around the world, essentially dried up from those firms. And my chairman, Dr. John Teeling, has got a great saying in, in that post 2009, it, it essentially became uh, the role of the three Fs, friends, families and fools who would actually fund these uh, diamond exploration ventures. And so it's become a lot tougher to fund uh, this particular sector. Uh, but notwithstanding that, there is still support behind it. And in particular, uh, things such as crowdfunding, royalty streaming and other means are used to actually fund it. So going on to the second part of your question of, about you know, a crystal ball going forward. Clearly, with the global pandemic uh, uh, around COVID-19 and, and the coronavirus, there is a, is a major uh, transient event which is taking place around the world at the moment. Many mines have actually stopped production. Uh, those people with discretionary income are obviously holding on to that income because most people, everybody is uncertain about where the future will be. So that has actually had, an uh, unsurprisingly, uh, a downward uh, trend on diamond prices and a downward trend on diamond production. So I would not want to actually, it's way out of my field as to kind of forecast uh, in the short to medium term as to whether there will be a V-shaped recovery, a U-shaped recovery, a recession or a depression. That's well beyond the remit of a, uh, somebody like myself. But the one thing that I, I can say is from a, a long-term perspective, and that's certainly what we look at in the diamond market, is that there are fewer and fewer diamond mines being discovered. And certainly if one looks at a, a generational timeline, uh, we still think that people will buy diamonds to, to celebrate a, a, a rite of passage. Uh, we still believe that they will be natural diamonds 
uh, and they won't re be replaced by uh, a, a synthetic alternative. And, and with that divergence over time in terms of supply and demand, uh, the only way that uh, that can converge is by diamond prices exhibiting real growth over a long period of time. Uh, but that long period of time, I, I don't really know what that would be because of you know, where we are at the moment. And you know, we're still not uh, on the downside of, of the pandemic as we see it. Because, I mean, you have you talk in your um, PowerPoint about the fact that it, it is harder for diamond explorers to get funded at the three Fs. That's a good one. Probably, probably applicable in a few commodities. Um, and the, you know, the junior funds uh, and institutions moving away from, you know, funding junior exploration companies. I mean, that's been a trend of the last five years. You think there's less money around and less interest around and less funding for, for diamond companies like yourselves. You think that um, that would be a good thing for the overall you know, pricing in the, in the marketplace, wouldn't you? You suspect, well, there's less being found. There's a bit more rarity, you know, a bit more less supply in the market, less certainty around supply in the market going forward if the growth is as you say. Um, that would be good for you, wouldn't it? Absolutely, Matthew. But I, I think one must look at the timing behind these things as well. Uh, I think everybody buys into uh, the supply-demand gap, and everybody, everybody buys into the fact that new producers will actually have to come in to fill that gap. But what you typically find is that it might take anything up to 10 years, between five and 10 years, from a discovery through to actually mining itself. Uh, and, and I get a sense people looking at much shorter term uh, money in areas where they can get a much quicker return than rather wait uh, for that discovery to take place and, and wait for that mine to go into production and, and start actually producing dividends. I think a trend that I, I, I picked up when I was at uh, the PDAC in, uh, just before the, the pandemic kind of came up is that majors seem to be getting more focused into uh, exploration itself uh, because they are beginning, they understand, of course, the supply demand uh, dynamics very well, but also because they can actually write their own checks in terms of their own exploration, uh, and they're, of course, bound by their own rules, uh, those are more internal than those actually uh, which investment uh, companies have to adhere to when investing in, in, in junior companies. It's when you're investing in exploration stock, uh, it, irrespective of whether it's diamond or elsewhere, you're doing a, a number of things. You're doing it, you're, you're banking on the team. Uh, the, the team knows what they're doing and they've got a successful record uh, of, of discovery. Secondly, uh, they're in the right area from a prospectivity perspective or a geological perspective. And then thirdly, is that there is acceptable political risk uh, in those countries in which you are uh, operating. Uh, so uh, my view is that the, the, the funding uh, and, and the majors will gradually kind of catch up when that supply demand gap becomes so wide. Uh, and then it will take some time to fill that because obviously exploration, you can't go out and find a diamond deposit tomorrow uh, and then turn on the mine next day. It's, it's, it's a fairly long, sophisticated process, which can give very, very good returns. It, it needs patience. 
So I think there will be a lag to answer your question in terms of funding behind uh, uh, the diamond exploration business. Okay, can I just, I just want to throw something at you, which is kind of like common sense thesis thought process that we're trying to go through. So if I'm if I'm looking at the the macroeconomics of the world at the moment, I'm seeing more and more people in debt, more and more credit card, um, you know, people people. Get, you know, suffering from the high rates that they're being charged on credit cards, and they're they're having less and less money to spend on needs, let alone wants. So needs being obviously food, energy, home, travel, all of those wonderful things, and things like diamonds. That's just a luxury, which I feel that quite a few of the generation, you know, behind me. Isn't going to be able to afford anymore. I mean, so how do you, how do you do your forecasting based on well, whatever, whatever. Well, what do you base the forecasting on? Unlike many other markets, such as the gold, copper, coal, and other markets, where you can actually read about the the price of that commodity in the newspaper and it goes up and down, and it's it's very transparent. You you can you can. Uh, look at historical trends, try and forecast into the future. And although nobody's perfect, you get some kind of idea about the future itself. Uh, the diamond market is, is a very much a multi-tiered market. At the, at the one end, at the very bottom end, you have very small diamonds, uh, which are, are poor quality, which would basically feed the bottom end of the market itself. At the top end, you have large diamonds, large colored diamonds. And, and the difference in prices between these two is astronomical. This market here uh, tends to be the ultra high net worth individuals who, of course, would have lost money uh, during this uh, particular pandemic and, and with a drop off in the stock exchanges. But relative to what they actually have at the moment, it would be small. So if they choose to still buy a large pink diamond or a large type two white diamond, they will still buy one. So the volatility in this market in terms of pricing and in terms of demand is very different uh, from this side, uh, where exactly as you said, Matthew, people are going to put bread on the table, petrol in their car, pay their mortgages, etc. And luxuries such as a, a diamond, a holiday, uh, a, a branded piece of jewelry or a handbag or something would all be subordinate to actually what are the real requirements. So this market here uh, has dropped significantly in terms of diamond demand and diamond pricing. But also interestingly as well is synthetic diamonds. Um, and maybe the, the, the greatest or largest example of that is the Lightbox initiative by uh, De Beers are also filling this segment. And, and these are coming in at a lower price uh, because they're, they're more readily available and they're not anywhere near as rare uh, as the natural diamond. So what we are seeing, and it's no different if one looks at the sapphire industry, the pearl industry, and, and other luxury stones such as this, is you're seeing a multi-tiered market as such, naturals, high-end goods here, focusing on one market, uh, synthetic low-end goods here focusing on another market and of course many other tiered markets actually in between so where's the money How, where where do you make the money i mean the high-end colored stones i get that they're the ones that 
you know, hit the newspapers and people talk about and the millions of dollars. And the, and the lower end where people you know got to choose between what they spend their money on or don't spend their money on can be filled with you know costume jewelry or these lab grown diamonds which I think you're mm. ind- indicating are getting less and less valuable because they're not rare um, but where do diamond companies like yourself try to position themselves because it's all under the ground you don't know what you're going to find until you you know, start doing the work. How do you work out where you can make money? Because I, I, I read about companies who find the odd big stone, and that's the thing that people talk about. But it's probably the hundreds or thousands of other stones that they find behind it will actually make them the money. I, again, can you explain that to us? How, how does a diamond uh, explorer, developer, producer survive, assuming you're not one of the big guys? We are a, a diamond explorer. And what we do is we... Uh, look for what they call kimberlite pipes. And and kimberlite pipes are basically extinct uh, volcanoes that could have erupted anything from 15 to 20 million years ago to one and a half billion years ago. So they're extinct uh, and they're solid and they're carrot shaped. And that's what we, we, we look for. Obviously, we try and look for those which have diamonds in them. And what our focus is from a a scientific perspective now, and it's a branch of science that is developing quite quickly, is how can you de-risk your diamond exploration techniques to try and only look for those uh, which are producers of of large or quality stones? And if I just kind of share with you a couple of stats, which are quite interesting, is you have around just over 6,000 kimberlites in the world of which 600 contain diamonds, of which 60 or thereabouts uh, have been or are diamond mines. So from an exploration perspective is we go into an area in which we know uh, has diamond uh, mines where they produce large or quality diamonds. And and typically kimberlites occur in in clusters. If If I look at the Arapa cluster, for example, in Northeast Botswana, you have approximately 60 kimberlites in that cluster, of which six are diamond mines or have been diamond mines, of which two produce large, high-quality, valuable stones. So clearly, that area is an area which uh, is highly prospective uh, for for new discoveries. Whereas you can go into other areas, uh, for example, uh, in in Southern Africa around uh, the Finch mine which is a very high grade diamond producer, but it produces, tends to produce smaller, poorer quality diamonds. So we tend to steer clear from that, although we may discover diamondiferous kimberlites, uh, that we, they will probably be uh, of uh, low value. It's a, a branch of science which we're working on right at the moment, and it's exactly what we discuss at the board level, is how can you short circuit that to find something which would actually meet uh, the long-term supply and demand. Okay, so you are you are aiming for the, the 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 top end at all times. That is where a company wants to progress to a point where it can position itself as identifying large or coloured stones. That's that's how you survive, and how you get funded. Well, that's how we survive is obviously uh, in exploring in the areas which our shareholders believe that you know we are going to find something. Doing obviously. Uh, 
we, we say what we do, we do what we say. That's really, really important. And importantly, that we, we show uh, progress in terms of our exploration projects from nothing through to finding a kimberlite, through to recovering diamonds, and doing this as fast and as cheaply uh, as we possibly can. Got it. And that's how investors come back in. Uh, and, and fund us. Well, let's let's get on to that. So I think you've given me a very good overview of, of the world and the viewers, an overview of the diamond uh, arena in which you play. Um, so let's talk about you. So you are an explorer, 3 million market cap. Um, let's just talk about some of the numbers first so we understand sort of what, what, what you're dealing with. So um, how much money has been invested into the company to date? The company has been going for about seven years. I've been with the company three and a half years. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and a typical uh, yearly cash burn, uh, for want of a better number, and I'm, I'm go it varies from about £350,000 a year to about a million pounds a year. And when we're spending the larger amount of money, it means that the, the level of activity, particularly the level of advanced activity, is very high. When we're spending the smaller amount of money, like you know, we're obviously doing now because we, we can't do any field work for obvious reasons, we'll probably be going below 350,000 uh, pounds per annum in that we're doing mainly desktop work uh, and obviously doing all the compliance work in terms of uh, keeping our licenses in good order, uh, audit fees, uh, stock exchange fees, etc. So our, our yearly cash burn uh, if one averages it out over the last seven years, is round about half a million pounds uh, per annum. And much of that goes directly in, in the ground itself, that uh, we, we don't have uh, a corporate office. Uh, what you see behind me is, is my office in, uh, in Irene in, in South Africa, where we manage our operations from, uh, from here into South Africa, Botswana uh, and, and Zimbabwe. And we, we don't actually tend to have uh, full-time employees. I'm the only full-time employee in, in Botswana Diamonds. And, and we tend to have campaigns on our exploration projects, uh, of which we have two in Zimbabwe, two in Botswana, and uh, four in South Africa. So we do campaigns on each of the projects uh, as and when uh, we see that the uh, the criteria are good to make an investment in them, uh, and, and and depending on the availability of funding. Right. So you're saying to me the company has raised in total in seven years three and a half million pounds. Got it. So how much? I'll have to double check that exact number, but it'll be round about that number. Okay. And how much years. cash are you sitting on today? Well, we we raised uh, three hundred and fifty thousand pounds in in March of this year, okay. and we were barely able to start our field programs. Uh, before the pandemic started. Uh, so we're reasonably well cashed up at the moment. Uh, we, we've, we've done all the things that other companies have done that uh, we're, we're obviously not active at the moment, apart from desktop work. Uh, as soon as the, uh, uh, the lockdown is lifted, we'll continue with our field work. But we're very, very mindful of the fact uh, that, you know, companies like ours tend to go back to the market once every year, twice every 18 months or thereabouts. So any funding environment, uh, we can't look at in the short term. So we've got to make our money last a hell of a lot longer. And we've put in measures uh, to actually do that too as well. Okay. Yeah, I mean, your, your share price saw um, a rise towards the 
end of last year and then came fell back down pretty quickly before Christmas. I mean, what, what was that caused by? Well, we tend to issue uh, between 12 and, and 18 news releases a year, all based on the work that we are doing. Mm. Uh, is We announced the issuing of a, a mining permit uh, on the project Marsfontaine, uh, which is immediately adjacent to a diamond mine, which had a three-day payback uh, and a published three-day payback on that. And our share price rose very fast, actually, on, on the back of that. And, and, and over the passage of time, it, it drifted downwards. Equally, last week, as your investors may see, uh, that we announced the uh, issuing of a number of new prospecting licenses and the renewal of old prospecting licenses in Botswana literally a day uh, before they were uh, shut down, locked down, sorry, uh, and went under uh, the, the, what everyone else is actually doing. But you saw our share price strongly reacted uh, to that too as well. And I would imagine over uh, the next couple of weeks, as we are unable to do any uh, work, it would it would drift downwards. And, and once we're in a position to go back to do work and we make positive announcements on the back of that work, the share price will go back up again. Yeah, okay. And so, I mean, it's all relative in the sense you're three million pound companies that therefore very little trading would have a positive or negative, a significant positive or negative effect on you with very little shares traded. Um, I guess what, the, one I, the bit I want to get into is for people looking from outside, well, at Diamonds maybe for the first time or they know Diamonds and they're looking at you and it's a small company, it's exploration, therefore it's high risk by nature. Um, what do you say to those people about what it is that you're trying to build out here and how, how do you ensure that you can? Because you're seven years in the making, right? So seven years is, is a long time if you were a shareholder from day one. So I imagine a lot of the people who have been trading trading in and out of this, but the general trend after early 2016 is, is down. So how do you say to people, look, we have a better sense of what we've got under the ground now. We know where we're meant to be looking. We know what we're looking for. We think that it, it, it could be there. Here are the next steps that we are going to fund and the, where we're gonna spend time and effort to actually create a meaningful story, which doesn't have an immediate drop off, like people cashing out or whatever it is that they're doing. Because at the moment, it, it's hard to see why I would come into your company. I want reasons to come in to invest in you because I think I'm gonna leave my money there for a year, two years, three years. I mean, what, what, what are you telling people? Uh, I think there are a few things, Matthew, and I'm gonna go back to the points I raised earlier. Firstly, you're, you're backing a team. Uh, and, and the team that we have in Botswana Diamonds uh, comes from the African Diamonds team, uh, which was listed uh, about 12 years ago and, and developed uh, the AK-6 deposit at that time, which has become the Karoe Mine. And those original investors in that company uh, made a 25 times return on their investment. And if you followed your rights actually all the way through, uh, you would have made a 10 times return on that investment if you sold out round about the high. So the team in which we, ha we have uh, has a track record of, of, of delivering diamond mines as well. The team also ha has worked in, in West Africa before and, and some of the projects uh, which 
we, we looked at under the guise of West African diamonds are, are now being developed under new field resources. So we do have that strong kind of track record of, of going into areas, uh, being able to work with, with the, the, the political environments we have, being able to work with the geological environment and, and deliver things as such. What we, so that's the first point. Uh, the, the second point is, is what we have in Botswana diamonds is we have uh, from a geological perspective, we have the most prospective area on the planet being Southern Africa. Uh, and we have it from a political perspective, we have it de-risked to, to some extent in that you have Botswana on this side, which is seen as the Switzerland of Africa, very, very stable, rule of law is great. Uh, you have Zimbabwe here, which is gradually moving up this way uh, following their democratic elections. And you've got South Africa in the middle. What we try and do in, in order to generate the shareholder value is we don't say we need 10 million pounds for this particular project. What we do is we try and raise a, a small amount as money as possible to be able to progress a project and then raise money at a higher price once we've delivered on what that project has and what we put out to do. And of course, it, it, it is relatively easy to deliver on drill holes, samples, meters, all those kind of things, but we can never guarantee what the results would be. We can say that we're going to do it cheap and we're going to do it fast and we're going to stick to our budgets. Uh, and if we're in the right areas, what that will mean is that we will drill into a kimberlite like we did about six weeks ago the share price will get out. So it's an opportunity for people who came in at one price to come out at another price. And, and typically what happens in stocks such as ourselves is that once we get to a point where we have discovered something significant, uh, that is when we either, uh, the larger institutions start to become interested in us or di larger diamond companies like with African diamonds, uh, which was bought out by Lucara Diamond, uh, tend to actually become interested in you, and it becomes uh, a, a corporate action, uh, which, of course, uh, the shareholders do well out of. That's a kind of uh, valuation mindset. Okay, so I mean, it's similar to any other commodity management team, have to have been there and done that before and shown success and ability to, to create value. I, I, I get that. Um, but with diamonds, because I don't know enough about them, there's not enough peer analysis done here. Uh, for me to know what good looks like and what not so good looks like. So with Rockwell, I mean, what was the time period? You've spent seven years so far. What was the time frame for Rockwell to go from beginning ex greenfield exploration through to actually starting to create some value? Because, you know, three million bucks, it's, you know, it's early, early stages. And I get that you're raising money in smaller increments to reduce dilution, to be able to get more information to raise it higher rates and so forth, but that hasn't happened yet. Is there a bit of the management team which thinks, let's just raise a whole stack of money, get us a runway for the next two years, we can just focus on that and not run around trying to raise money all the time and then come to the, you know, come back to the market with something a bit more meaningful because we've got the money to deliver something a bit more meaningful. I mean, what, what's that arbitrage in terms of your decision making? Okay, if I could if I could answer your, your first part of the question, mm. uh, it was African Diamonds. Rockwell was a diamond producer. That was another sorry, company. Sorry, I was involved apologies. With. Uh, African Diamonds. But African Diamonds took seven years or, yeah. or thereabouts from 
being listed on the on, on the London A market and the Botswana Stock Exchange mm -hmm. to eventually being bought out by uh, Lucaba Diamond Corporation. And of course, there were many large spikes actually within it. If one goes back to the early stage, <laughs> On, on the drilling and the discovery uh, of fairly significant portions of uh, diamonds from AK6 itself, is, is the share price went up a multiple uh, of, uh, I think it went up to £1.50 at one stage after being listed at 5p uh, within its third year of life. So, And many people sold out uh, actually on that itself. Mm. The second part mm. of your question about why don't we just raise £10 million and be done with it is, there's a very, very careful balance of, of not diluting your shareholders, keeping your original shareholders with you, and incrementally taking each of your projects up the value chain. If I go back to my comment about 6,000 Kimberlites, uh, of which uh, 600 contain diamonds and 60 are mines, is it is relatively easy to go and find a Kimberlite. And, and the market likes it because it's, it's a discovery. Uh, but the process to uh, evaluate that Kimberlite and to get a resource is much more complex. So with the projects we have, which we have in Zimbabwe, Botswana and South Africa, you incrementally take those uh, along the line. And the minute you believe that they're not going to actually work out, that it doesn't have uh, possibly significant numbers of diamonds or uh, they're maybe it has too deep cover in order to make it to mine, you leave it and move on to uh, another project within your kind of portfolio. So you don't want to say, uh, I'm going to spend 10 million pounds on one project because that project you might take to a certain point and then actually stop it because there's actually not no point actually putting money into a project which doesn't have a commercial potential of, of being a mine. So it's that balance. Uh, and yes, we do raise money twice every 18 months or, 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 or thereabouts, but we raise a relatively small amount of money for very defined project work. Uh, and we then, you know, obviously I do the standard investor relations things, which are, are very, very important, but it doesn't become an all consuming process uh, to actually raise the money. Uh, so you actually take your eye off the ball in terms of doing what your investors have actually mandated you to do. Uh, and that's where we've got a very strong board uh, you know, with our chairman and finance director and others who are very, very deeply experienced in terms of you know, that balance uh, of shareholder dilution, uh, share price growth and the volume or quantity of work. Uh, that you would actually undertake. I totally understand that, but it's like, like sometimes it's, you've got to get that arbitrage between moving quickly, getting scale, and conserving, you know, cash and managing dilution. I, I understand that, and I just wonder if it was different in the world of diamonds than it than it was, say, in gold or copper, for instance. Because so you mentioned a, a word there, which some people off book people often forget, which is the evaluation stage, right? So people go from exploration straight into development, but they forget about the evaluation stage. So you found a Kimberlite, one, so it's, you know, I guess that's a bit risky if it's just one, but how do you, for the world's diamonds, evaluate a Kimberlite? What's the process? How much time does it take? What are you looking for? What do you need to know before you make a decision that this could be economical? Matthew, it's, it's a very good question because this is uh, where there's a bit of a funding gap. Okay, we start, we found a Kimberlite. Uh, 
And the variables that we need to understand about it are its obviously its size. How many tons are there? Uh, that's number one. Number two is what is the potential grade of the kimberlite? And we measure that uh, not in grams per ton, uh, like gold and others, but in terms of carats per hundred tons. And then the third variable, which distinguishes diamonds uh, from all the other commodities, is the price of the diamonds themselves, uh, the dollar per carat. You can have mining operations, for example, uh, in the Arapa area, if I use that again as an example, where at the top end you've got uh, Lucara's uh, Karoi mine, which gives you values, an average value of, of north of $350 per carat, and you have other producers in the area which are south of $100 per carat, and that's based on your size and your quality of diamonds. So the first step after finding the kimberlite is to define what they call an inferred resource. And in order to get an inferred resource, you need to have sufficient confidence in your, your size, your grade, and your diamond value. And typically, you need to take a 500 carat sample because this will give you uh, the relative confidence at an inferred level uh, to value your, your, your diamonds and get your grade. The next stage is an indicated resource of which can then form part of a, a feasibility study or a preliminary economic assessment. And there you need to generate 5,000 carats of diamonds. And here is, is part another departure maybe from other minerals where if you're drilling for a gold deposit, you will send your, your core uh, to a laboratory and they will tell you what their grams per ton of gold is in, in it. And then you'll do your sophisticated geostatistics around that. For a diamond deposit, you typically need to actually uh, build your own bulk sampling plant on the property. So you can actually recover the 500 carats because let's say that your, your, your kimberlite is is, is running at 50 carats per 100 tons. As an example, you would need to take a 1,000 ton bulk sample from the kimberlite itself to generate your 500 carats. So, so typically, there is money available for your early stage exploration, which is relatively cheap to do your geophysical work, to do your drilling work. But as you can imagine from what I'm saying now, in order to take your bulk sample, you need to build a sampling plant and you need to have your sampling plant actually on site or you need to have a a relationship with somebody who actually has uh, a sampling plant and that's exactly what we've got so we don't want to go and raise money to go and build a bulk sampling plant because once you've done your bulk sample potentially that plant actually has no value so the very first bulk sample we took uh, from Thorny River in South Africa. Uh, we had processed at a, uh, an independent sampling plant owned by uh, another mining company. And then for the bulk sample that we've just taken uh, now before the uh, lockdown started is, is safely in the yard of another mining contractor who has his own bulk sampling plant. And, and for this, uh, he is being remunerated on 85% of the revenue of the diamonds itself. And so we have been, uh, we're not taking any of the cost in terms of the plant, the mining and things like that. Uh, we're getting all the information we need from it, which is really important from a geological perspective. And there's that little cherry on the top that will generate some revenue from it too as well. 
Very good. No, that's that's fascinating because I'd, I'd never sort of understood, I didn't understand the difference and the the process, but it's, some of it feels similar. But obviously, I guess the the way you go the way you go about it, uh, well, it makes sense. It makes sense to me. Um, James, I mean, thank you so much for running through that. Uh, that that was, that's fascinating to me in terms of the the, the macro com- component here. Um, can we just talk about what it is that you think you've got and what you think the timing is? for the kind of next big event? Because again, I'm looking as an investor, looking in, I'm like going, is now the time to invest? Or should I wait a year? Because um, you just raised a bit of money. You think, you, you, I think you're suggesting that will keep you going for the, you know, certainly the next nine, 12 months or so. Is that, is that about right? Yep. Well, maybe not that long, depending on uh, how quickly that we do our work post the, the lifting of the lockdown itself. True. That, that, that's that's true. So you know why should just I mean maybe finish let you finish off and say why should investors be looking at Botswana diamonds now as opposed to waiting to see what happens after your evaluation phase? If I focus on our Botswana projects first, uh, last week we announced the renewal of certain prospecting licenses and the addition of new licenses. We also mentioned in that press release. Uh, that we're going to be drilling uh, once we have the environmental management uh, permit and also obviously once the lockdown is uh, uh, lifted as such. And we're going to be drilling on high-grade geophysical targets which have kimberlitic minerals over the top of them. So we're going to be very likely drilling into kimberlites. So that is certainly going to be a newsworthy event. That's number one. Number two, also in Botswana, is we have a joint venture uh, with a company called BCL, which is in liquidation, which has discovered some uh, potentially high-grade kimberlites also in the Kalahari region. And the new liquidator of BCL, and and BCL has got nothing to do with, the liquidation has got nothing to do with diamonds, by the way. It's due to a a copper-nickel project they had to the east of the country. The liquidator is making great progress uh, with kind of unraveling the corporate uh, morass there. And, And once that project uh, we are able to kind of release that. Uh, there's significant work and potential behind that. The third one I- I'd like to, to mention, and there's only four, is our Marsfontein and Thorny River projects in South Africa. Uh, we have taken a 100 ton bulk sample uh, from there. It's currently in our mining contractor's yard. As soon as the lockdown is lifted, we'll process that, that sample and, and we'll release the results on this. This follows the successful drilling of, of kimberlite on the Miles Fontaine project some three or four weeks ago. And then number four, it's something that we've been working on very hard uh, with our partner, Vast Resources PLC uh, in, in Zimbabwe, is our, our joint venture on the Morangi Diamond Field in the east of that country. Uh, Vast is obviously, the, the, the uh, they're leading the negotiations uh, and they're the major partner in this, uh, but they put out a press release last week that the, uh, the ward of those uh, tenements in Morangi is imminent, but obviously the Zimbabwean government is focusing very much on the pandemic at the moment. And then then as soon as this pandemic has passed, however long that might be, and we all hope and pray it's going to be short, that license will be issued. And then we can rapidly go through uh, the exploration through to trial mining hoop and start developing things. So those are the four projects we have. 
and um, we've got many more, uh, but those are the four projects we're particularly focused on at the moment. And those are the four projects where there's likely to be strong news flow uh, in the next three to six months. Fantastic, fantastic. On that 350K you raised recently, was that, was that institutional or was that raised by a broker or was that your, one of your three Fs? It, it, it was, it was a, a, a number of the three Fs. <laughs> Uh, we had a, a number of high net worth individuals and then friends and families who came in to support us. Right. OK. 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 That, that, I guess, do you think you guys have got the credibility because you've, you've obviously worked at you know, African Diamonds, etc. before? You've got the credibility when you go, need to go and raise a meaningful amount of money you know, in the next 18 months or so. Are you going to be able to walk into the city of London and, and people will be listening? Do you feel that? Well, Matthew, uh, our last fundraise at African Diamonds before we got bought out by Lucara Diamond was for seven and a half million pounds. Uh, and it, that was obviously raised through the, the typical kind of broker route in, in the city of London. And it was very well participated in a project which we all believe to actually have legs. Uh, and, and, and I see uh, if we can demonstrate uh, the significant commercial potential behind a project, we will be able to repeat the same thing again. Good stuff. Good enough from me. Thank you very much for your time, sir. Thank you for the education. I really appreciated that that piece. Um, stay in touch. Uh, I say, hopefully we get through this and you get on and do some work. But and, and when you do, give us a call. Thank you so much indeed for your time, Matthew, and all the best. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed the interview, why not subscribe to CruxCast or our website, cruxinvestor.com and of course our YouTube channel, Crux Investor. Plus you can catch us most days on Twitter and LinkedIn. We really love getting your feedback, so please keep it coming and we'll speak to you again soon.